Well, hello and welcome to episode 85 of the world-famous, award-winning, much-lauded uh, Tetrapod Zoology podcasts. I'm a talking crow-like thing and I podcast with... John Conway. And today... Um, like okay so i listed last time a bunch of things that i thought were interesting and newsworthy and one of them was the sad death of the los angelino puma cougar mountain lion catamount purple feather (laughs) uh, p22 um did you see this in the news death of p22 p22 was a pretty famous cat um he was a male uh, puma. I. What do you call those animals? I call them pumas. Yeah. Yeah. No, you try and get the context of what people are likely to call them. If I'm talking to an American, I'd probably say cougar. Yeah, cougar or mountain lion seems to be their yeah. preferred one because puma, I guess, is uh, from some South American countries. But whatever, I say puma, which is t- turns out right that uh, in this part of the world, in Britain. That confuses a lot of people because their only reference to Puma is the brand name, the sports brand name, where mm. the Puma is black. So they think that it's the they think that the Puma is the Black Panther, apparently. Which you know, oh, the someone... whole Panther thing. Oh dear. Yeah. Anyway. So and and then of course Panther is also like a common name for Puma. Anyway, yeah. So um, P twenty two is a now deceased but famous Puma who was probably, I think he's supposed, right, so from what I remember, he's, because I've read a lot about him over the years, he's supposed to have been born in about 2010, and he was like became known scientifically as part of this Pumas in the Los Angeles area in 2012, and I think he was radio-collared at that point, and um, I guess they're fully mature by probably like age three or four, something like that. So he probably would have, as far as I remember, so he's like, you know, he's an adult. And um, then he studied by a team of biologists. I can't remember the name of the guy in charge. Um, by the guy in charge. <laughs> and uh, uh, and then he sort of becomes a celebrity because it's like, wait a minute, this cat is like roaming around the suburbs of southern Los Angeles on the eastern side of the Santa Monica Mountains. I think it's southern LA, and um, is spotted like like in like in people's driveways and sort of around the Hollywood Hills kind of area. You know, there's there's people there all the time, people and their dogs and stuff. And um, obviously, it's a it's an urban center and there's big highways. And P twenty two must have regularly crossed these large and very busy, dangerous roads. And they're like, where is the cat doing this? How is it doing this? You know, what, how come it's de- it's developed the smarts to do this and survive? It's pretty remarkable. And they wanted they wanted to answer to those questions. They never got them. And um, within the last couple of years, I, I'm going to say starting around 2019. Oh, I think there was a, so there was a case 2019. He he was he, he looked different. Oh, I should say that his his behavior is like his life appearance. His appearance was known pretty well because professional photographers set up camera traps and got really good photographs of him. So there's an iconic, I think, a Nat Geo photo, which has got P22 in the foreground that it's literally got the Hollywood sign behind him. And it's like, wow, that's, you know, that's a really striking photo. Um, took them, I seem to remember reading that it took the photographer like... <sighs> Uh, uh, like a year to sort of get that photo which is an interesting point because of course when it comes to photographing animals like cats in the wild people assume you put out a camera and you check it the next day and i'll photograph the cat no it's like months and months and months of messing around and uh, many obviously you know a long period of frustration and failed attempts in 2019 he looked bad and it turned out he'd contracted mange um he'd caught it from like baited rat traps or something uh, but he was captured and medicated and recovered from that in about 20 i'm gonna say late 2022 it was noticed that his behavior was different he was taking more risks he'd attacked a couple of dogs don't know if he'd killed them small dogs chihuahuas and he his uh, territory his 
territorial behavior was different. He was like roaming around in new areas. And there's always this frisson between, on the one hand, people like, it's really cool that we've got big predators in an urban area. And on the, on the other hand, it's like, there's like kids and pet dogs and stuff here. Do we, you know, should we be doing something about this? There's, there's obviously sort of different opinions on the proximity of large predators uh, to, you know, to, to, in this kind of environment. So the decision was made to capture him and decide what to do. And late 2022, it turned out that, that at this point in his life, and bear in mind, he's not very old, um, he sadly had got loads of things wrong with him. He had like, the side of his face was fractured. I think he had like sort of four or five herniations or organ ruptures. I, I'm not, I'm not doing this with any of the information in front of me. So I'm not doing this, all this like, um, you know, don't have, didn't even write down all the notes, but um, didn't write down any notes even. But yeah, he had loads of things wrong with him. And so think about what I just said about, oh, oh it's amazing that he's successfully crossing these highways and stuff. In actual fact, he'd had multiple collisions with vehicles and um, lots of things wrong with him. And of course, when an animal like a large cat has a bunch of things wrong with it, that might affect its ability to hunt normal prey and engage in rough and tumble and bite and whatnot. That's when their predatory behavior might change. We, we all know this because we've all heard stories about, you know, people eating lions and leopards and whatnot. They tend to be injured individuals that find out that people are quite easy to capture. So um, the decision was made to, did they decide to euthanize him? Because I know the end of the story is he died. <laughs> um, how is a mystery i can't remember if uh long-term medical problems uh parasitic infection he was euthanized he was euthanized on december 17th so december 17th 2022 um, oh i also let me sorry what one point of history that i forgot he also went into the los angeles zoo and is suspected of killing a koala there i shouldn't laugh at that but um <laughs> yeah so again that's like a danger of having a uh, a large cat in an urban environment it's like if there are there's there's lots of stories by the way my discussion here is going to fall into three parts p22 leopards in india and then big cats in other parts of the world including the uk and in places like the UK, where people say they see non-native large cats, a lot of the stories involve um, non-native cats going to collect collections of cat captive cats, you know, zoos and private collections. Where, of course, if there are, like, so in the case of P22, you know, going to a zoo where there's interesting smells, not just from other cats, but from all kinds of other exotic animals, that are captive and therefore like you know more available than the wild ones that are running around um you know that's an interesting thing to keep in mind and so the zoo were asked do you want to take action should we like um uh hunt this cat get rid of it and they decided not to but they instead decided to modify the enclosures certain enclosures so that enclosures are designed to stop animals on the inside getting out <laughs> now you've got to stop Animals on the outside getting into the enclosure. Okay, enclosures are also designed to stop people climbing in and stuff. But um, yes, yeah, that's what they did. They actually modified the koala enclosure and some others to, um, yeah. So, how long people. is a wild puma expected to live? Yeah, not long. Uh, in fact, just twelve years. If you're right about the 2010, is not doesn't seem that bad to me. No, no, you're right. Cat. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. The longevity of all the carnivorans is generally less than 20 years. So um, off the top of my head, I reckon that like bears and lions and sea lions and things generally don't live much beyond, say, 15. So, um, yeah, yeah, which which is, again, is a super interesting thing. This is, a, this is another tangent that I'm not going to explore now, but it's like think of our relationship with domestic animals. We're very long-lived primates. Um, and yet we form these partnerships with animals that can only that okay there are record holding pet cats that have lived into their 30s uh, I don't know what the record age is for a dog but it's certainly beyond the 20s so um, yeah we we form bonds with animals that can never like have lifespans similar to, similar to us um, it's a real problem if they do actually, because then you've got to hand them off after you die, and you know becomes a bit of a source of stress. I think for a lot of people. 
um, True. you know, yeah. for the longer lived animals. Yeah. Um, but I think it is kind of interesting that even big cats, well, they don't live much longer than small cats. I think we sort of have a notion of bigger animals living considerably longer than smaller animals. I'm sure statistically that's kind of true. But um, yeah, big cats, yeah. as far as I know as well, don't live particularly long. Yeah. I wonder if it's got to do with um, uh, selective pressure on them. Uh, uh, being a predator of that sort is a pretty risky life, right? At some point, you're going to be injured pretty badly, and you wonder. I wonder if um, at sort of fifteen-ish, it's already pretty certain that you'll have had some pretty um, <laughs> catastrophic disaster. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know because you know uh, we talk about very long-lived animals or animals that wouldn't even die naturally of old age. Eventually, disease or something will get you. Um, and yeah. so there's no real selective pressure to live forever, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. yeah, I do wonder whether big cats, the predators in general of the, that sort, are always a bit shorter lived than. I think anyway. animal, yeah, animal longevity is such an interesting and complicated subject that we could uh, maybe <laughs> talk, talk about it another yes. time because there's a lot to say about it. But it's almost, I kind of feel that like the lifespan of different animal groups is something inbuilt to their biology and it's like it's still not clear why that is and whether it's yeah. adaptive or not but so carnivorans in general the fact that they don't live much beyond 30 it's there's there's like certain things inbuilt into the genetics of animals that means like they're they're telomere degradation at telomeres these segments at the end yeah. of dna strands that sort of start to break down after a while um it's like there's an inbuilt self-destruct system so uh, the record age for domestic dog is 30 years so again yeah that's in keeping with what we we're saying so uh, another caveat here is that exactly how you describe pumas when saying that they're cats and they're large then automatically we say they're big cats it's like technically they're not big cats because they're not part of the clouded leopard plus panthera clade. They're not pantheroin cats, but then they're large, <laughs> so they're big cats, but they're not big cats. And in fact, they're not small cats either, because in the in cat phylogeny, the puma, cheetah, jaguarundi clade, which is probably part of the same lineage as like the golden cats, servals, caracals, they're, yeah. Like, can you see me wincing here darren <laughs> oh my god you cannot expect big cats to be jargon that all people will stick to clades with mm -mm. well the, the cat big cat is a cat that is big i know people that are into it will use it in a different way but you are just asking for trouble if you try to stick to most most clade. cat books cat books make a point of saying pumas actually a small cat even I know. though it's big it's like well, but no, even that's not. not true right so that's not true oh, because dear. yeah those old books they thought there was there was like a, a basal split in modern yeah. cats leading so to they'll say Ooh, it's actually not a big cat it's a giant small cat like, yeah. yeah okay all right whereas yeah, it's more complicated. How about we just actually bit. talk about the clades instead of I big just, cat and small cat? Anyway, yes. I just wanted guys. to chuck that out there. So so um <clears throat> now so P twenty two is a poster child for and God bless his soul, you know, it's like sad that he's died. It's uh but then you but but then and you said maybe as you've said, um he had a good run. And he probably did single-handedly, single-portedly, um, more to... Um, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, he did more to um, further the um, discussion about wildlife in suburban uh, environments than uh, any other individual. That might be a little bit too hard a statement, but... But certainly the amount of articles about it were like, what What do people in the Los Angeles area think about this? There's a bunch that didn't like it. But mostly it was like, well, we want wildlife to live alongside us. It's great that there's like an animal like that that's, you know, at the fringes of our society. And, you know, this, the, the North American experience is very different from the British one, he says at this point in the conversation, in that they're still living in an environment where you don't have to go too far to find animals that can kill you. <laughs> um, 
uh, bears and uh, bison and uh, the big deer. Yeah, you're already sure. living as if this could be the case, right? So, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. so, so I, I think it's it's an interesting thing, and within the broader context, there of course have been many really interesting um, articles and bits of research and stuff on the fact that over over the past like fifty years ish humans have increasingly moved into suburban and even urban areas you know even like moved into sort of like jogging park, parks where people go jogging and stuff and um mostly without incident but not entirely without incident because because <laughs> there's yeah. some there's some famous um deaths um to people and um you know like takings of pets and things and cases where people certainly were threatened in predatory fashion by pumas that have probably um, not lost, but have got a reduced sense of fear about humans because they're just so familiar with them. So there's the famous case from, I'm going to say early 90s, of a woman called Iris Kenner. I think this was in California, and she was out walking in the morning, and she was definitely killed by a puma. Uh, her friends said that if, she was, if, she, if you could talk to her... Um, from the grave she would say don't kill the don't kill this puma because it was just doing the puma thing but they did they um the animal control people um dressed a deer in her coat in the same spot where she was found dead and the puma as cats generally do it came back and that's where they successfully treat it with hounds and and killed it so that that case got a lot of attention. It's like, wow, pumas are actively killing people that are going out walking in the early hours of the morning, or, or not early hours of the morning. I don't know, seven a.m. Not early. And um, there's a That's really, really in the middle of the night, Darren. <laughs> it is. Oh my god, what kind of a person gets up early? Um, there's a really good documentary uh, about uh, pumas in uh, Los Angeles and surrounds, and um, and it includes what's one of my favorite pieces of television ever which is I, I like in preparing to talk about this i thought should i like get loads of notes and make sure i know all the details or should i just say it off the top of my head and then you sort of learn that when people listen to a podcast they kind of like the stuff that's off the top of your head right mm, yeah. <laughs> you well, sound much more natural saying it than if you've uh, got all the notes and stuff right in front of you yeah oh. i hate people that do research and, yeah. it gives, and it gives people a chance to give feedback, which we may or may not pay attention to. <laughs> so you got that wrong. You got that wrong. You got that wrong. <laughs> and you got that wrong. Okay, so in this documentary, it was part of a series uh, that I saw many, many years ago. Had it on VHS tape. It's that long ago. And it was about, you know, human-wildlife interactions, different parts of the world. And they're interviewing this woman. And... Um, Again, I'm pretty sure it's in California. I'm pretty sure it's in the Los Angeles area. She's she's out jogging. Okay, so there's a lesson there, number one. People go jogging. What's the matter with it? Um, she's out jogging in the morning in the park, and um, she startles a deer like, on the track in front of her, and she thinks, oh, cool, a deer. And then the deer runs away, and then she realizes, well, that deer was running away from a puma. And, oh, and there's another puma, and there's two pumas, and they both, like watch the deer run away and then she describes how they both kind of like look at her with clear this sort of predatory dial turned on clearly and it's like wait a minute that's the same size as a deer i reckon we can kill that and they start to stalk her and she realizes i'm in trouble and she climbs up a tree and she spends having said it's early morning it can't be early morning because she spends the whole night up the tree and um she describes how she fashioned a spear out of <laughs> branches and she like kicked the cats in the face and stuff at one point knocked one of them out of the tree one of them grabbed her foot in its mouth and um yeah they were that persistent the whole night they spent trying to get her and obviously they, they were unsuccessful and obviously she survived but it's like oh my god wow that's that there are parts of again pretty sure it's california but this is part of that story it's some of these cats have become so used to people and are now seeing people as potentially um on yeah the menu. you've got to wonder what sort of level of predation on humans people would put up with before this becomes impossible yes and i should think it's not very high actually i think the no. occasional incident every few years maybe but if it becomes a regular thing 
Yeah. So again, the books say that um, um, you might think that a puma is like potentially quite a dangerous animal, but don't worry. They've never actually killed one, never actually killed a person. And the um, American Indians, they say that, um, that don't worry, a puma will follow you maybe for miles because it's just curious. It will like keep on sort of peeping around a rock and stuff because it's curious about a person, but it, it, it's never killed one. And but now it's like that's probably not true. They 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 can be dangerous as as can all the large cats. And um, so as usual, whether this is a new thing is not entirely clear. It's like for all I these discussions. Yeah, I would be very surprised if an animal like a puma never learnt to hunt humans. If it's not incredibly dangerous for them, they're going to learn to do it, aren't they? Like, why wouldn't they? Now, maybe adult humans might be out of their, in the top end of their size range, and they don't particularly want to do it. I don't know. But children? Mm. Why would you not take it? Yeah, yeah. And without putting my David Polides missing 411 hat on, which, don't worry, I don't have such a hat, (laughs) but um, for every discussion about, don't worry, no one's ever died this way, it's impossible to, to die this way, it's possible to be killed by this, it's like, Wait a minute. If you like ever look into the stats on missing people, <laughs> it's like every nation in the world has hundreds, if not thousands, of people go missing every year. And it's not considered really a big deal. We all know that people go missing. And in general, we don't know what's happened to them. So I don't know. I'm not really making a point there, but it's like for you to say that don't worry, people don't get Yeah, we know thousands you. of people go miss- missing in national parks in um in the United States, for example, and do are we saying that none of them ever could have been killed by humans? Well, maybe, but yeah. you know, we've certainly got enough missing people for this thing to have fallen between the cracks, right? But not yeah. seeing it happen. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So there's there's a lot more that could be said, and a lot more intelligent stuff that could be said about um, the about pumas and other and other, you know. Well, coyotes that's another story but predatory animals carnivorans um moving into the suburban environment and their interaction with people and how the animals behavior has changed there's lots can be said about that you need to do lots of like you know proper reading and check the sources to say stuff more intelligent than what we've both said but it's interesting and it's clearly a a phenomenon and it's something worth talking about and people have been discussing it more because of the sad death of p22 so so that's the that's the american thing i wanted to get out of the way um the the in i wanted to touch on the indian story because uh not i don't have anything particular in mind here not like some recent discovery or what have you but um there has been a fair bit of coverage over the last couple of years of leopards in um urban and suburban places in india particularly mumbai where uh leopards are now probably i think it's fair to say not just visiting but living in the suburbs and you know making a successful life of it there and um this was covered in some depth in there's an episode of the david attenborough led bbc i think planet earth series where they did like five episodes on different habitats and the last habitat was I don't know what it was called, but it, it was something like cities, but whatever it was yeah. like, you know, sort of places where, where all the people are. And and it was about wildlife in the cities. And I do remember watching at the time and the main feedbacks of the things that were said in like write-ups in, you know, newspapers and whatnot, or the web web versions of newspapers, who reads newspapers, was, um, was that this is the most significant episode because it's like, you know... It, Obviously, more and more people are living in cities. Cities are becoming sort of, you know, urban spread, blah, 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 you know, encroachment of cities on the natural environment. But some animals are successfully making this transition to this kind of life. And in some cases, the future is not necessarily dim. It's like there's a bunch of animals that are probably going to be okay in this environment, so long as we are prepared to sort of tolerate them and leave required bits of greenery and such for them. And would you have said that this would include animals like leopards? <laughs> I mean, again, it's like, well, would people tolerate those? And at the moment, it looks like they kind of are. So when something goes horribly wrong, and it has done, to be sure, 
like for example a leopard has jumped into the playground of a school then that's a little bit different and there are some horrific and pretty you know amazing cases where people have had to go to great trouble um india in particular to corral and detain or even kill uh, a dangerous leopard you know i think that's fairly understandable but um uh, in in other cases, you could say that people are are tolerant of them, and um, those animals will persist. And in cases, those animals are um, even almost providing a uh, an ecological service. So one of the main um, it's a slightly touchy area for reasons that I'll explain, but one of the main prey items of leopards anywhere near places where people live are feral dogs. Now, people empathise with dogs probably more so than any other animals. So when you talk about we need dogs to be removed, that's a touchy, that's a touchy subject. That's not black and white. But the fact is, we do need feral dogs to be removed. There's too many of them. They're a genuine problem for all kinds of reasons. The danger they pose to people is one thing. The danger they pose to, you know, other to what to Proper, air quotes proper wildlife is itself is itself a problem and there's just like no end of them and and you know so many countries around the world don't really have any means of controlling dogs or you know um prevent preventing mm. them from breeding and whatnot so if you've got animals like leopards that are actually predating on dogs are they predating on them sufficiently to actually sort of make a difference to dog populations i mean um again i'm saying this off the top of my head without actually having looked into it but um yeah, and I think there's an interesting question in this sort of moving into city environments thing, which is, well, um, obviously it would be adaptive for them not to um, make the local primate population angry, right? So mm. the populations that live in urban environments either, well, it's probably too too quick for biological evolution, but the cultural evolution of them might lead them to being less aggressive to humans because the ones that do that get killed or kicked out pretty quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I can imagine a, a population of leopards where it just culturally they just don't do that. They they prey on dogs yeah. and other things, but they just never touch people. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating subject that I, I've been meaning to write about that for a long time. The idea that... Um, carnivorans in by the way i do specifically always use the term carnivorans for members of the group carnivora because the the term carnivores is still in widespread use but it's still hopelessly ambiguous you all the time people talk about you, you find lots of people get confused when you say carnivores but you're talking yeah. about just animals that eat other animals or do you yeah, specifically yeah. mean them carnivora so i call them carnivorans and then there's no ambiguity i think that's good but, i think that's good it's good Thank you. Yes. I think it's good. Um, yeah, so it's been discussed in the context of urban foxes, uh, the red fox, the European red fox, which might be a different species from the North American one, if you follow some research, because they seem to have changed in appearance and body size over the time that they've become increasingly urbanised. So they become smaller, but they've also become cuter. They apparently, <clears throat> and by the way, not in the old-fashioned sense, which cute. Did you know cute? is abbreviation of acute meaning pointed so if you said hey you know in, you know in uh, american films hey that's cute john real cute that means acute as in a pointed remark yes so <clears throat> maybe that's a different kind of cute whatever um no i didn't know it did come <laughs> from that but anyway go ahead so urban red foxes they're like shorter snouted and friendlier looking and sort of fluffier and cuter than like the wild ones, which are sort of like yeah, sort of like nefarious, <laughs> <point. Yeah. laughs> twirling of the moustache. <laughs> I'm going to kill your chickens. <laughs> Tiny little so, beady eyes. <laughs> so, so now, so apply that to to cats. So yeah, so you're talking about um, yeah, like you know, a shift in hunting behaviour, what have you, and avoidance of people. That would be pretty easy to evolve, right? You know, over couple of generations but could there, there could also be anatomical evolution i mean and here we come to the gray area as to which things are like actual 
how do I explain it? What things are epigenetic and are not? So, for example, body size, right? So we know that body size changes through evolution by way of natural selection. But body size is also limited or controlled by like nutrition. And even in some animals, like the literal space you've got, you know, some animals will grow to a certain size according to like the, the size of the area they're, they're living in. Yeah. So let's say, let's say you're a leopard living at the fringes of a village or a town and you're eating like scrappy little prey. Uh, you're not able to put on as much like fat and that sort of stuff as one living like the ideal leopard life. So you will end up being a small leopard and that is that that because that's the that's the development of an individual so that is not evolution but if that does happen over the course of generations then to me it's still gray as to whether we actually describe that kind of you know what would, what would ultimately be a, a trend um yeah because yeah. if you put them back in the wild in a different environment they they just like those individuals in a single generation might go back to being, you know, yeah. full leopard size. There's no genetic yeah. drift there or anything. It's not like the population's been selected for small body size, really. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I think. Yeah. But so I you think... could get both, of course. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. And for an yeah. animal that's as that's as phenotypically plastic as leopards, okay. There's there's currently seven or eight recognised subspecies of leopards. Leopards are geographically like very very variable, but some of these Asian ones and super some of the African ones as well. They're not very big animals to start with. They're um, we're talking about like 30, 40 kilos, no less than 30 kilos, almost 20, 30 kilos as an adult, which is not a sort of three foot long, you know, big, <laughs> big cat. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's a small, big cat, small, small, big cat. So yeah, um, the the sort of the speculative zoology tendency in me um, means that I think we could take seriously the idea that that if these populations do persist, and it seems that they will, you'll end up with or you'll have populations of suburban um, suburbanly ad adapted miniature big cats that have co-evolved with people and understand something about human behavior and can still make a living and are doing things that we consider slightly unusual like exploiting feral dogs or even pet dogs uh, yeah see some... i think this is a problem i think that uh, the window of this it might close at some point because you know we might get control of feral dog populations for example i mean it might be a way off but i should imagine this is on the radar um indian authorities right um and therefore are cats adaptable enough to start to scavenge which is the obvious um other way you can make a living in an urban environment because it's so energy rich but it's not necessarily particularly rich in living animals that you can hunt yeah could there always be enough things like feral pigeons and rats and stuff to make a living if you're a uh yeah a, a cat in a place in a place like India or Mozambique or Ethiopia or Kenya or and, what have you? you know. And you know, maybe, but I think it's an open question. I don't think it's obvious to me. Mm, um yeah, because the yeah. huge advantage of cities is their energy very they're very energy dense, but it's mostly because humans bring in a whole heap of energy and just dump it in terms of waste food and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, and a cat can't do a thing like a sort of civet or a fox can. It can't stop, can't scavenge out of bins, make a living off discarded fruit. Um, yeah, it might be stuff. able to make. It might be able to make a living out of discarded meat. I don't know, but I don't know how fussy they are about this sort of thing. I know they don't generally do it, but I, I don't. I wonder how much of that's biological and whether it could just behaviourally really change. I'm sure they could do it if it, if there was a regular supply of it. But that's the thing, isn't there? Because uh... If but often the scraps are not like, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know whether they're nutrition, nutritious enough for a cat mm. population, if you see what I mean. You know, yeah, um, yeah. it's probably bits of bone that with stuff attached, you know, chicken carcass. Is that really any good for a for a cat? I don't know. Mm. 
Well, I think, yeah, it, well, this might tie back to what I was saying about them becoming like sort of lesser nutritional demands, not ideal, but still able to survive on that. Like they yeah. wouldn't necessarily. So like there'd be sort of reduced litter size and reduced bone mass in them and that kind of thing, but they still might be able to do it. Have you seen any of the footage of how leopards actually do hunt the dogs that's been filmed? I don't think so. I did watch, I did see that, uh, the, whatever the, the documentary was, was it, um, was it blue planet? I can't remember, but anyway, the planet earth, on planet earth. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did see it, but I don't remember yeah. scenes like that in it. Quite a few places in the world, people keep dogs, but they, the dogs are kind of outside creatures that aren't really pets. And the dogs mostly live, their life is their furry burglar alarm slash doorbells, right? So the dogs sleep in the yard, sometimes chained up, or sometimes they sleep on the front porch. And some people, of course, have got, um, what do you you call it? You've got a camera sticking out the front of your house, security cameras, or what are they called? What's the name for the new name for door cams or something there's like a there's a name for security cams that you have put sticking out in your door mm. and you know what i mean those things yeah so you can find quite a few bits of footage various african countries and uh, probably india the ones i'm thinking of are, are from africa so there's the dog curled up asleep on the steps of the house obviously this is at night the dog's fast asleep and they've caught on camera the leopard sneaking up to the dog and then the leopard just stands over the dog and sometimes for a very extended period of time 10 20 minutes like waiting you can't obviously you can't hear exactly what's going on but it looks like the leopard is waiting for a precise moment in terms of like the dog's breathing and sort of like where the dog is in its sleep cycle. It's waiting. So for sp- creepy leopards. Why you got to be so creepy? Yeah. They're waiting for a specific moment when, or they're just plucking up the courage because it's, you know, you got to choose your moments when you're killing other animals. I imagine um, you've got to sort of, you know, decide exactly when to make the strike and grab the vulnerable part, you know, the neck or whatever. And um, yeah, and then when once they do that, then they quickly like um, run away, obviously with the with the dog, and that's the end of that. So, uh, but it sure looks to me prey, yeah. isn't it? Dogs, um, I yeah. should think, but I think probably an individual dog isn't that difficult to prey upon. But and I guess domestic dogs, um, you know, they're deprived of their pack, aren't they? A lot of the time, there by themselves yeah 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 i mean i should think that a pack of dogs would be a much harder um target yeah leopards wouldn't it yeah leopards are are famously very good at at, at predating on dogs and um which presumably i don't know this but presumably reflects a habit in the wild of predating on foxes and jackals those kinds of animals because because interestingly obviously Domestic dogs, when they go feral, all revert to like a sort of you know semi-wild status. So-called pariah dogs are nothing like big wolfy things. They're they're kind of quite lightweight, um, small, slender uh, animals. So so yeah, leopards appear to be really good at that, and, and appear to have I've I've used it quite a lot in stuff. I've consultancy stuff I've done on like how how animals actually go in for the kill because it's like they they're they're paying specific attention to um the sound of breathing and, and exactly where the animal is in its breathing cycle and all that sort of stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Leopards versus, versus dogs. So, um, but yeah, totally different ball game. If it's like the middle of the day and there's a pack of dogs, that's not how it goes down. Um, so yeah, leopards in urban environments in various African countries and India, and I'm sure elsewhere in the world, uh, it's, it's, um, seems to be from what i've read an increasingly either increasingly studied or genuinely increasingly prevalent phenomenon in that uh obviously in certain places uh people are encroaching more and more on habitat where animals like leopards live and secondly the leopards themselves are becoming more adept 
at uh, uh, living in these places and hunting successfully in these places, persisting in them. So, so um, yeah, will it become more of a? Um, yeah, will we see? Will we see more of this going on in the future? Um, and then the final thing I want to talk about is, and this is the sort of the least science-based part of it, the prevalence of uh, the apparent prevalence of non-native cats in places like here in England, where we have a certainly a long-standing tradition or a belief in the presence of um, non-native cats, you know, panthers, uh, pumas um, in the countryside. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's no secret. I've written, I'm very interested in this. It's one of the things I'm most interested in. I've written about it a lot and spoken about it a lot. Um, as with all of these uh, unusual animal, uh, like sort of borderline cryptozoological things, phenomena, I'm trying not to say things because it's so so easy to say it for everything. Um, whether it's a purely socio-cultural, sociological phenomenon, like if it is, my feelings aren't hurt. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And I think what makes a lot of these um, mystery animal discussions difficult to pass, difficult to sort of like sort of tease out is that even if there is no animal real like flesh and blood animal at the bottom of the story there is always a socio-cultural component an anthropological component to the story so what might be surprising to many people in many parts of the world is western europe it's actually more established for france than it is for the uk but western europe has got a long history of people imagining panthers as part of the landscape like why on earth in places like France and England would people imagine there are like black leopards in the countryside? And we don't really know where it came from originally, or I don't, or I haven't bumped into that idea. But it seems that the the sort of like ordinary people, the peasanty people, they've always imagined that the rich people were like looking after panthers and releasing them into the countryside. And the predatory actions of those panthers were like made the lives of the peasantry more difficult. That's a, that's a, an idea that goes way back, like certainly to the Middle Ages and probably before, and it's persisted, particularly in rural areas, until way more recently. So there are there are some technical papers published on you know surveys that were done among like French farmers, <laughs> like, what do you think about the big cats? And like, well, we hate the big cats because they've been introduced by rich ecologists who've deliberately seeded the countryside with leopards to make our lives more difficult. And that was as mm. bizarre, but honest belief. So, so where I'm getting at, what I'm getting at is that that belief exists kind of independently of whether the people are seeing the cats or not. Now, as it happens, I'm pretty confident that people are seeing non-native large cats in some Western European countries. They are uh, a phenomenon in France, definitely. There's some really good cases from France, but mostly from England and from the other British countries as well. We certainly have people um, claiming on fairly regular basis to see non-native cats here. And, um, And I'm pretty confident that at least some of the evidence is quite good. I've personally seen, I've written about this quite a bit, but I've seen tracks and hairs um, and other field sign, um, pit, pit, tooth pit data on bones that is only really consistent with um, the activities of leopards and pumas. So I think they are here. But um, Yeah, um, I think the the cultural aspect of this is pretty interesting but I think, sorry, not but, and I think it does actually tie into how we imagine this would go down if it was real too, right? It's not like, um, okay, they probably don't do it to make the life of the peasants and the farmers miserable, right? It just seems like an odd motivation. They probably just do it because they don't care and they need to get rid of this animal they weren't expecting to be so difficult to look after or it just escaped or whatever. They got it as a you know, um, 
impress my friends kind of look how rich i am toy and then it gets out somehow either they dump it or um it escapes and so they're right that rich people probably are <laughs> responsible for this right i i don't i i can't think of another plausible explanation for how uh big cats would get in the only plausible explanation if it is real i think is basically escaped um exotic pets as we call it now and certainly back in even going back to the middle ages i can imagine people indulged in this sort of thing well we know they did right yeah so i do think that the sort of the class warfare aspect of this is interesting because mm. yes um rich people are responsible for this and it probably is a real pain when it happens around you and it's killing your animals and things like that i don't know i just think that's kind of an interesting angle on it that it's persisting maybe because it really did make an impression in certain areas and went on for long enough that this is a continual belief um, yeah yeah through generations when it's probably not been happening all the time through that or unless you think it has and i guess that's the other explanation that these populations are persisting and this is a continual um um phenomenon that people are dealing with i think the problem uh, with that is then it's not really the rich releasing them or the ecologists release <laughs> ecologists that's an interesting one <laughs> releasing them to um to make their lives a misery anymore because it would be a persistent population but anyway <laughs> mm. no i th i think yeah it, it is strange there is an article about it by john mich no whatever it's, there's a really there's a really interesting article and it's it's some kind of yeah it seems very odd to us it's some kind of like uh it's it's kind of it's a sort of symbolic thing that is then discussed as if it's real what i mean by that is that if you think of the like Imagine you're a peasant in 1600s Europe. Uh, I'm thinking of France, but it could be could be anywhere in the UK. And now think of the associations you have with the super rich of the time. So I'm thinking, first of all, they own a great big castle. They probably own a deer park. They probably go around in like a real fancy um, carriage drawn by some particularly beautiful horses. And they own tapestries, right? So that's like sort of like five-ish things. Oh, and they've probably got a well-stocked lake or moat with big ornamental fishes in it, right? So that's like a bunch of stereotypes that I might imagine is true. As a peasant, I might think is true um, for that set of people. Well, it seems that that for the peasants of that time, and if anyone thinks I'm discussing peasants in a derogatory or negative fashion, I myself am a peasant. <laughs> so, right, I'm not dissing the peasantry the truth the truth is we're all peasants right unless you are you can literally tr trace your ancestry to what nobility the vast majority of people are peasants the well, peasants were the middle class of the middle ages i know i know loads of people who do trace their ancestry to nobility because i yeah sort of the highfalutin circles i work in these days whereas my my uh family history is well known <laughs> thanks to my mum mum being a genealogist for years and it's just all peasants all the way back. And when I say that to her, I say, why do we have to descend from peasants? She said, they're not peasants. They were yeoman farmers. <laughs> but not whatever. I didn't have a penny to rub together. <sighs> Couldn't I be born rich? Anyway, and um, yeah, so among the list of things that you think of as true for the nobility in the Middle Ages, on that list of things, got, they got a deer park, fancy fish. They eat well, they eat figs. On that list is panthers, and <laughs> they've got they've got panthers, and it's like it's not necessarily true. Probably hardly any of them had panthers. Like maybe sort of one in a hundred or one in a thousand like had a panther that they kept in a cage and like you know actually did have as an exotic, not pet, but you know as an exotic animal they would show off to their other rich friends. But in general, it wasn't true. It was like a sort of symbolic thing. But the fact that it was a symbolic thing meant that it then became a thing that was believed to be true. So if, as a peasant, you're wandering around in the French countryside or England or wherever, and you see a big black cat, it's like, I know where that came from. That came from Lord and Lady 
chancellery mobile down the road you know it's like that that's the only place where it can have come from so <laughs> which yeah. is probably true if they did see a big cat right yeah so that's where i think this is kind of funny it's kind of like there's a lot of there's an interesting if they are seeing big cats this is the explanation for it mm. i wonder what could similar things we have we think about billionaires now um <laughs> which you know it's true of enough of them that yes yeah, so there's a grain of truth there but just most of them don't do it i don't know so how many billionaires actually have a private jet now maybe maybe all of them do i don't know but i could imagine it's something like that you know something we think they all do and then it turns out well hmm, some of them do yeah mega and soon yachts. we're going to be seeing private jets roaming the countryside and going, there's billionaires <laughs> private it's a private jet, jet. <laughs> that's so, yeah 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 so to step back a little bit and take the, the broader view, if there is this embedded socio-cultural concept of big cats in the European countryside, then yeah, what does that mean for the claims of people actually seeing them alive and being convinced they've seen them? I feel in terms of my approach to what eyewitness testimony I'm prepared to accept versus that I reject, I'm completely inconsistent and I've got no way of <laughs> squaring my um, uneven approach to this subject, uh, this this whole area. And I don't know what to do about it because it all boils down to my personal subjective, not subjective, my, ah, oh dear, what's the term? My, um, What's the thing where you my, whether I can suspend disbelief or not? Because to me, if you say I was walking down the road and a flying saucer the size of a Boeing seven four seven appeared in front of me, hovered in the road, and a blue beam came out, and I was taken up into the ship, and some zeta reticulans uh, extracted some material from my gonads, right? If you tell me that, that's pretty high on the <laughs> list of things that i won't believe but if you tell me you're wandering around wandering through the countryside and a big black cat ran in front of you that's pretty low on the list of things i'm like i'm more inclined to think that do you know what i mean it's like for me the concept of people seeing big cats when t when people tell me they've seen like a non-native cat in the british countryside I can't think of there's a, there are a few, but I can't think of many cases where it's like, yeah, right. I just don't believe you. Generally, it's like, well, that's okay. Yeah, I can I can accept that. That's I don't think that's ridiculous at all. Even though I haven't seen one for sure myself, I have seen something that could have been a big cat actually, but um, it's not a very interesting story. But by and large, the anecdotes that I'm aware of sound pretty believable to me. And I think some of them are. I think some of them are mistakes. I think some of them are people seeing like pet cats or wild living domestic cats and misidentifying them but mostly they're not mostly it is people seeing like puma and leopard sized animals leopard type animals and um yeah i mean the mistake of scale can be easy to make there are optical illusions and stuff which you just you've misjudged where it is yeah yeah and things like that so yeah, yeah sure. I, I could, you should surely uh but then the best yeah identifications but yeah yeah i've no doubt they are and it's not helped by the fact that people like photograph any old cat and then pretend that it's a big cat so most photographs are clearly of domestic moggies but or wild living domestic cats but most of the most of the anecdotes that someone like me would accept as valid almost the second thing said in the in the story is i knew that it wasn't a domestic cat because i had my labrador with me and this animal was taller at the shoulder than the labrador when stood in the same place or they say they'll make a point you know because this is clearly an important thing if you've seen a cat you need to establish that it is a large one they'll, they'll say stuff like it was stood uh, it stood next to that log and I put my, you know, I'm repeating what I just said. I put my dog yeah. there and the dog was this height and the cat was that height. So like that's at the forefront of people's mind, establishing that um, they have, well, the, 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 they've established the size of it. It was something that's... The problem is, of course, witness testimony is really difficult to... Yeah. Um, well, you can't tell good from bad a lot of the time. People that don't sound very plausible can be telling the truth. And people who sound super super plausible could be lying or mistaken or exaggerating or whatever in that, you know, their memory of it is a bit different to what actually happened. And um, they made mistakes. They, they 
put their dog next to the wrong log, for example. You know, this sort of thing. It's a story that sounds very plausible if you accept all its bits as they tell it. Could still be some sort of, mm, it's not really how it happened and there were mistakes in there and that sort mm. of thing. Yeah, so witness testimony is just so hard to say, well, that's definitely good and that's definitely bad because plausible sounding testimony isn't necessarily more accurate, right? It can just be due with the way people tell stories, how articulate they are, that sort of stuff. It's notoriously difficult, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. So well, like I said, I'm, not I'm... having a method for deciding which ones you believe or not yeah, is perfectly... That's forgivable because i if you did have did have a method for that then i think um for example mm -hmm. law enforcement would be very interested in finding, yeah. finding that out so that would be big news right that we had a good way of telling <laughs> finally um, finally yeah we could so tell whether it, people are lying about stories yes. or not or mistaken even like wow and, okay and yeah and you you will probably be clued up on this but for those of you who aren't all of this stuff about looking for micro expressions and being able to spot the uh, uh, here I am performing some subtle bits of body language. If you if you if you <laughs> know this this idea that you can watch someone and you will know whether they're telling the truth or not. I got really into that and like started paying loads more attention to little things. Pseudoscience after pseudoscience, it's been it has been established as convincingly as it can be that um people that have like people that are doing all the things that guarantee they're lying aren't lying <laughs> and people that do all the things that guarantee they're telling the truth are lying <laughs> so it's a uh, yeah uh which which i kind of wish i'd cottoned on to that uh someone someone criticized me for some specific stuff i said about um uh, a particular person that was being interviewed about a mystery animal sighting the rilla martin ozen cadnock tiger case from near Garoki in Victoria, Australia. And I was like, she does this. She she purses her lips and refuses to make eye contact with the, with the interviewer. That's just because she was really shy or something. It's like, it doesn't actually prove yeah. she was lying. A lot of those things are more about how confident you are rather than, um, you know, mm. eye contact and stuff like that. You know, nerve, socially nervous people don't make a lot of eye contact. It's not to do with lying. Yeah, just naturally look shifty. Yeah. I think but, you um, can tell. I think these things, the, the, tr the, there is some truth to it, but you have to know the person really well, right? So like, it's one... not like you can't tell when someone you know really well is lying. I think people can get mm. do better than better than chance there, anyway. Maybe. Um, well, but... that's the, the the studies say the opposite. They say it's no better. Even even evaluating all this stuff is no better than chance. No better than just randomly. No, guessing. no, I still think that's not with people you know really well. People know really well. Okay, that's the, that's yeah. the caveat there. But, um, no, that's but, what yeah, I mean. Yeah. If you know people really well, you can see the change in behavior, right? Uh -huh. When you talk about this, you normally don't, you're normally not so shifty. Why are you so shifty when you're talking about <laughs> this particular thing, right? <laughs> so, yeah. I, anyway, I think that's why people believe it, because they can see it in their own personal life. But if you're just approaching someone you don't know very well, especially someone you don't know at all, it's it's completely useless. Anyway. But Marge, I swear, I never thought you'd find out. <laughs> um, yes. So, so all of that said, all of that is fine and and fair and true. Um, even even these with these caveats in mind, um, <laughs> I still choose to believe that some people are telling the truth when they tell their very good cat stories and uh, British big cat stories. And on a few occasions, they have taken really really bad photographs. Which um, so in some cases there's field evidence that backs it up. There are tracks that have been identified by cat experts as those of non-native large cats. There's hairs. There is DNA that has been successfully extracted from hairs found in the British wilderness. Hasn't been published. Can't get it published for a list of reasons. Um, but yeah, there's uh, there's a couple of cases. So Hans Crook, who's well known for his work on hyenas and other African predators, extracted some leopard. DNA from some dung found in the UK. That's a big deal, and it's not been properly published. Myself and colleagues were responsible for extracting leopard DNA from uh, hairs that were identified on anatomical basis as as leopard hairs from Devon, and and there are other cases. And there's this toothpick data. So people have collected bones of sheep and deer from places where large cats have been seen, and you look for the three. Um, uh, like perforations made by the uh, sectorial teeth and the distance between 
the three um, perforations corresponds to different cusp uh the difference in the difference in the spaces between the cusps and you can identify which which animals doing the biting that work's been done there's a couple of papers that have been published on it already and they have concluded that the biter the animal leaving the tooth pit um the tooth pits was uh like leopard and puma sized cats and there's, there's other work of that kind that has been done but yeah photos it's like people have done a terrible terrible job the photos are really really bad and um but nevertheless i'm i still think that some of them are like i can't think what else that could be so off the top of my head one of my favorites is i think it's a sequel i think it's a mobile phone video um so if you're interested in british big cats i do recommend you listen to rick minter's podcast i think it's just called big cats in Britain. i've starred on it at least once possibly twice and um yeah, he does a pretty good job of talking to people about their British big cat experiences. So what do we know about it from the other end, like where these cats could be coming from? I know one theory is that there's a breeding population, but then the 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 most obvious theory is that they are escaped yeah. um, exotic pets. And do we know, to, is there any sort of data on how many of these animals we think are brought in and then lost? Yeah, let me let me just draw a line under the Rick Minter thing because I just wanted to say that one of my okay. favourite I just want to say this my favourite bit of footage um, a woman reported seeing a large black cat pursuing a deer like a roe deer at speed across a field like so it's a long long tailed black animal definitely not a dog you know what what can it be and she filmed it and there's stills from the sequence and it's terrible it's absolutely terrible so they're, they're just blobs in the distance but it's like it can only be a cat it's like it's not a dog it is not a dog um and what else is it so yeah so sorry to go back to what you're just saying so what's often stated in the context of this discussion is that there's a huge number of animals that are held in private collections there's a massive number of animals like cats that are kept in registered collections. We know that captive animals in registered collections escape and they're generally captured really quickly or they return, you know, of their own volition or, or they get killed or whatever, like really quickly. It doesn't see unless zoos regularly lie. Now, I do know of cases where zoos have lied about animal escapes, and I'm not allowed. I'm not going to discuss that on the podcast. I'll tell you off air. I know a really good case of this. So they do lie, but mostly they don't. So most of these animals cannot come from, you know, known sources. So are they coming from other sources? Again, this is like this strict enough records on this now for it to be quite hard for you to just like accidentally like lose a leopard or turf one out. Um, yeah, I guess if it's a, entirely illegal, right, then the both keeping them is probably done worse than the registered collections, you know, just the security around them is probably worse. Mm. And there's no way they'd ever report losing one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I wonder what the sort of escape rate is from registered places. Um, but then you need to know wh whether, whether, one, whether there are... Um, illegal yeah collections how common they are i mean i'm sure there are obviously some but yeah mm -hmm. how common they are and yeah it might just be completely unknown but it does feel to me like one of the angles of attack on this how common it is yeah yeah and it has been said that it's um when people claim to see uh, a non-native exotic animal like particularly in the USA and particularly in Western Europe, then straight away, it's, oh, it must be from a collection. And then everyone quickly does a test, does a check of what's in collections, you know, official and private. It's like, no, no one's lost any of those animals. So, or es escaped, like it's from a crashed circus tr truck is another uh, sort of standard thing. It's like, well, there's no circus trucks moving animals around, let alone crashing and losing them. So, so I don't know, as popular as those explanations are, they're difficult to square with the way it actually works. And it's almost as if the animals are already an embedded feature of the landscape. And maybe that's where this is going. I mean, um, 
yeah are they do we have like so so the reason i wanted to come to this after talking about p22 and about indian leopards and leopards in various african nations is yeah do we have like could we have naturalized populations small populations you know cats are famously cryptic and also famously wide ranging very mobile animals could we have populations of them in countries like the uk and for whatever reason we've done a really bad job of recording them and getting the data that we really need to convince people that are totally skeptical about it because because the fact that they don't show up on game cams convincingly there's some terrible uh um remote camera pictures of british big cats they're they're all really terrible they do exist but they're all really terrible it's like why aren't there better ones and yeah. no matter what you can come you i i have come up with with various sort of explaining away things like oh the, these cats are like really good at predicting human behavior so they don't use the roots that we use so they won't get caught in front of the camera or they can hear the 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 camera's mechanisms or you know all these or they can or they don't like the smell of it this sounds very much like exactly the explanation as to why bigfoot isn't captured on uh, <laughs> yeah on... i um yeah my personal feeling on this is that I don't think there is a, there are wild population or feral populations out there. Mm-hmm. For all the reasons you're saying, you need special pleading to explain why we don't have better evidence of. Yeah. I mean, I accept the evidence that there are occasional big cats in the countryside. I think that's pretty solid. But the explanation for that is, I think the, yeah, where I, I fall down, and I think these are escaped illegal exotic pets yeah i think yeah um anyway we've got to wrap this up i was gonna say we could say a lot more about it we'll come back to another time and we also at some point we'll talk about the australian situation which uh, you may or may not be uh, familiar with despite your uh ancestry but um yeah Aust- australia's got a really interesting uh thing which thing ah it's got a really interesting non-native big cat as opposed to native big cat <laughs> um phenomenon which has got many parallels to that of europe because yeah it's kind of like there's a mythology of panthers in the landscape even without people seeing them there's sort of automatically this like belief that they're there so so yes there you go that's a few thoughts on uh cats around the world inspired by the sad death late last year of 2022 we'll wrap it up there thanks to everyone who listened there's a massive spike of tens of thousands of new listeners on the graph following the release of episode 80 oh. four and no doubt there will be for this one as well so uh thank you for listening thank you sharon for expertly editing out john's potty mouth um uh. yeah john is on the internet at John at sauropods.win, that's, that's a Mastodon account, and you are at? At. It's out of reach again. Oh, by the way, there's all this, this annoying clicking in the background. I think it's like microphone tapping on something. Sorry. Sir, I'm almost afraid to ask, but does that include shutting me down too? No, I need you to talk to the Falcon and find out what's wrong with the hyperdrive. Uh, at Tetzoo. <clears throat> And I podcast, uh, no, I write stuff at tetzu.com. Some exciting stuff new to the blog next week to do with some unusual dinosaurs and some unusual stuff about them. Yeah. Exciting. It's going to be all over there. Stay tuned to that blog. Right. Let's split there. Yeah. Stop it there. Okay. Bye.